Hello, and welcome to the Church on the Hill podcast. If you enjoy this podcast, we invite you to join us live this Sunday at 500 Sands Drive in San Jose, California. Visit churchonthehill.com for service times and directions, and also to learn more about connecting, growing, and serving at Church on the Hill. Now let's join lead pastor Scott Simarok as he teaches at Church on the Hill. All right, Christmas, we're a week out. Christmas is what? It's the celebration of this baby coming from God as our gift. But listen, it's not just the baby, right? It's our gift of a savior, one who forgives us. We're in the middle of this series uh, on David's life, and I'm going to tie David into the Christmas season, but I have to take you through this journey. So grab your notes. There's a lot of notes. Grab your Bibles. Let me walk you through the geography of this. If you travel east out of Jerusalem on Highway 1, you get to Highway 90 and you make a right-hand turn, this is your view. It's the Dead Sea. If you make your way down to the water, you'd be greeted by this beautiful shoreline. Now, the Dead Sea, it glimmers with these crystal clear blue waters. To the thirsty traveler, it appears to be an oasis in the middle of the desert. But it's actually not, because these waters, they're deadly. They're so salty and so filled with these minerals that women pay a lot of money for, for beauty products. But if you drink it, it can actually kill you. Now, the Dead Sea, it's also the lowest point on earth. Did you know this? 1,358 feet below sea level. And what's interesting is the community that lived there, that lives there, they've actually embraced that as a part of their identity. Just when you thought the bar couldn't get any lower, you could go to the lowest bar on earth. (laughs) If you don't think that's funny, someone will explain it to you later. Okay. Now, if you continue south down Highway 90, you're going to get to this place. You're going to see a sign for En Gedi, and you have to turn right because if you turn left, you'll be in the Dead Sea. Um, in En Gedi, if you park your car, hike up the ravine, you'll come to this oasis. This is just one of many different pools of water because all year round, 800 million gallons of fresh drinkable water flow through En Gedi, creating this tropical paradise that actually has a lot of plants the same as Hawaii would. This is the landscape where David and 400 of his men hid from Saul among the caves, the thousands of caves that lined this ravine. It's in this paradise that David had a couple choices. One is this, where's he going to drink from? Is he going to drink from the Dead Sea? Or is he going to drink the fresh water from the springs of Engedi, right? The choice is pretty simple. He's going to drink from Engedi, from these fresh springs, because one will poison you and one will refresh you. But David had a second choice. We're going to discover in 1 Samuel chapter 24 that David had this choice. He could drink from a cup of poison known as holding a grudge. He could drink from this cup that was bitter, pretending like it would quench his thirst, Or he could go grudgeless and drink from the cup that we know as forgiveness. Here's where this story comes from. We're in 1 Samuel chapter 24. It tells us the story about how David forgives Saul. Now, pay attention to this. Chapter 24. In chapter 26, it's almost the same story. It's just a different setting where David forgives Saul again. 
So you have two stories that bookend. And then in chapter 25, there's another story where David has the opportunity to forgive someone else and he doesn't. He takes revenge because he has a grudge. Now, listen, when the Bible lines up three stories in a row like that, and one of them is slightly different, you have to take a look at all three and see what it is that God is trying to say. So here's what we're going to talk about today, the grudgeless life. And I, I don't know if you have a grudge against anybody. Like, I, I don't carry grudges. They're just people I don't talk to anymore. Okay, whatever. <laughs> this story, I hope God speaks to you about this concept of forgiveness which is why Jesus came. So here we are, chapter 24, verse one. You can follow along your Bibles. Since I'm telling three stories, I'm gonna have to move through it quickly. Verse one, after Saul returned from pursuing the Philistines, he was told, David's in the desert of En Gedi. So Saul took 3,000 able young men from all Israel and he set out to look for David and his men near the crags of the wild goats. The, the word En Gedi actually means the, the, the crags or the wilds of these wild goats. He came to the sheep pens along the way. A cave was there and Saul went in, catch this, to relieve himself. David and his men were far back in the cave. Now, just to be clear, in the Hebrew language, this actually means Saul went into the cave to poop. It's just what it meant. This is what I love about the Bible. It's like sometimes it just gets graphically true. But he had no idea, Saul had no idea that his private bathroom wasn't very private because David and 400 soldiers are hiding in the back of the cave. Now, if you remember from the last couple of weeks, Saul has been pursuing David to kill him. Because David's a threat to his throne. God's already had the prophet Samuel anoint David as the next king. And it says that the spirit left Saul and landed on David's life. So David's men, they interpret this divine moment as God's gift to them. Look at verse 4. The men said, This is the day the Lord spoke of when he said to you, I will give your enemy into your hands for you to deal with as you wish. Revenge? Oh, it seems logical. We kill Saul and all of this hiding in the desert is over with. We can go home to our families. So David, he sneaks up behind Saul while Saul is busy with his business, all right? And David takes out his knife and he grabs the king's cape and he cuts a piece off and he sneaks away. And Saul never knows that he's there. And I know some of you are wondering, like, really, how did he, how did he like sneak up and Saul never knew and like his cape? Well, we all know this, right? I mean, no one does their business with their cape on, right? I always take my cape off before. And so Saul never knows he's there. He lets him walk out the cave when Saul is at a, a safe distance. He shouts out to him. But I want to point out this. His men saw this as an opportunity to take revenge because of this grudge against Saul. But I want to talk about the grudgeless life. Because the moment that you're tempted to take revenge, make note of this. Point number one, opportunities for revenge can also be opportunities for mercy. And sometimes when you choose mercy and you see that opportunity, you might actually have to go against the people that love you and care about you because, because revenge sounds so logical. So let's clarify revenge real quick. Because you might be thinking, I have never snuck up behind another person with a knife. You might have a cousin who would do that, right? 
but not you. You would never physically harm someone. Most revenge today isn't physical. Most revenge today, it happens with our words as we speak about people and try to kill their character. I know it can come in the form of like trying to withhold opportunities at work against people. Try to say things or, or hinder their progress. I think revenge also can be this. It has a grip on us when we conjure these opportunities and things that we might do or say, and we just, we run over them and over them in our minds and we can't seem to let it go. David, in this moment, though, he holds up Saul's cape when Saul has walked out of the cave and he holds it up and shouts to him and he just says, look, I'm proving to you that I intend you no harm so that Saul might leave him alone. But I want to make note of this. It says something and it reveals that David's mercy is driven by his belief in God. Look at verse 12. David says, may the Lord judge between you and me and may the Lord avenge the wrongs you have done to me but my hand will not touch you. Here's what I think he's saying. This is David's belief. The grudgeless life, it leaves room for God's justice and God's timing. Here's David's belief. David's not God. You're not God. I'm not God. We're not God because God has a bigger perspective about what is right and what is good. God knows best. Have you ever been in a corn maze? Uh, This corn maze right here, is, it was in Dixon, California. Uh, at one time, they claimed to be the largest maze in the United States. And th- that's a top view. And you see those, like, they look like little Lego things there. Th- those are bridges. We'll get to that in a minute. But here's your perspective and your view. This is what it looks like, right? You'll have fun, they said. <laughs> Let's go to the corn maze. Listen, a- as men, we do a lot in our lives to not get lost. You know what I'm talking about? I don't know, getting lost, I don't know how that ever became fun. But somewhere in the midst of this maze, there's these bridges, right? They look like this. You walk up this bridge so that you can get a higher perspective that you might choose the right path so that you can get out of the the corn maze. The bridge is designed to give you perspective. But hear me on this. When you're in an emotional turmoil of a grudge, it can appear the logical option is revenge, But when you say, God, no, 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 in your hands, in your timing, it is not for me to take it out on someone else. You're admitting this. The belief is God has a bigger perspective and he knows the way out and you trust in his justice. The question becomes this. Do we actually trust him? There's another interesting question. Do you trust his timing? You know how long it was from the time that Samuel anointed David as the king until he would actually take his throne? 14 years. And many of those years would be on the run, running away from Saul because Saul intended to kill him. Here's what else I find out about the grudgeless life. Number three, good reputations can be crushed with one evil deed. Look at verse 13. David tells Saul this old uh, proverb. It says this, As the old saying goes, from evildoers come evil deeds. So David says, so my hand will not touch you. What does that mean? It means this. David can get it right 99% of the time. Like, I'm not going to take revenge. I'm not going to take revenge. I'm not going to take revenge. And then there's that 1% moment where he just can't take it anymore. And he takes revenge. Reputations 
Our good reputation of who we are as God's people who love people, forgive people, that reputation can get crushed by that 1% moment in your life where you've just had enough and you don't show mercy and you don't show grace. When we do something evil, it actually comes from an evil heart within us. And I know this about me, that people will judge me sometimes based off of my 1% moments. And they'll judge you that way too. Oh, that Christian, she just did this. He just did this. And they'll judge you and they'll judge your ministry. And they'll even judge God by our 1% moments. Now listen, the truth is, it's totally not fair. But people will do that. So we want to choose the grudgeless life. Um, The grudgeless life, also this, number four, it trusts in God's sovereignty to reward you. Look at verse 20. This is Saul's response to David. He says, may the Lord reward you well for the way you treated me today. I know that you will surely be king and the kingdom of Israel will be established in your hands. Now, if I jumped forward to chapter 26, um, let me just read a phrase from there. David claims this. He says, quote, the Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness. And don't we love that? Because I want a reward. Don't you want a reward? If someone asks you, hey, would you like a reward? Like, absolutely. What do I have to do? Live a grudgeless life? Huh. <laughs> the problem is this. We just want our reward right away. And it doesn't always happen right away. And, you know, if I'm going to be really honest with you, I think sometimes... The reward is you looking at that moment you could take revenge, knowing you didn't. Knowing, you know what, I I held my life with integrity at that moment. I, I made the right choice. Sometimes the reward you will never know other than, I just did it right. In this, uh, in this story, it's interesting because Saul breaks down weeping and then he goes home because he knows he's wrong. And Saul's apologies are, they're really short-lived. So in chapter 24, it ends with Saul saying, super sorry, David, I'm not going to chase you and try to kill you anymore. And then they part ways. And then you get to chapter 26, right? Flip over a page or two. Chapter 26, it's happening all over again. Saul's chasing David with his 3,000 elite soldiers. David only has 400 men, but David discovers where Saul and his army are camped. They are on the outskirts of the camp. And he and one of his soldiers named Abishai, they sneak into the camp where Saul is. And Saul is surrounded by all of his bodyguards. And the scriptures tell us that God made a deep sleep come over all of the camp. So they go there and right by Saul is Saul's spear and his jug of water. And Abishai, this stud of a warrior who's next to him, says this. Today, God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't need to strike him twice. (laughs) It's interesting. Abishai doesn't even say, hey, David, would you kill him? Because Abishai was there with him in the cave. He knows that David won't kill Saul. But he's just wondering, will David let me do it? You know what kind of behavior that is? That's Saul type of behavior. Because if you remember the story, what did Saul do? Saul sent David off to war, hoping that the Philistines would kill David in battle. And when that didn't happen, he sent men to David's house to kill David. When that didn't happen, Saul went after him himself. 
But why would David want to be like Saul? Saul just tried to get other people to do his dirty work, his vengeful work. David, verse 9, says this, says to Abishai, don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be, here's the word, verse 9, guiltless. As surely as the Lord lives, he says, the Lord himself, the Lord will strike him. Or his time will come and he'll die. Or he'll go into battle and he'll perish. Like David's like, listen, he could die three different ways. Like it's not going to be by our hand. But that word guiltless, listen to this. The guiltless life means this. No revenge, no regret. There's people who live with an awful lot of regret. I skipped a verse actually in chapter 24, the very first story that I told there. And it was verse five and it reads this way. Afterward, David was uh, conscious stricken for having cut off a corner of Saul's robe. What? I mean, it's almost comical. You could have killed him. You cut a piece of his robe off and you felt conscious stricken. Like I shouldn't have done that. Could you imagine what David would have felt if he would have let Abishai kill him in that camp? David he would have been overwhelmed with a lifetime of regret. So here's what they do. David and Abishai, they take Saul's spear and they take his, his water jug and they sneak out of the camp. And once they're at a safe distance, they're like, Saul, wake up. And he holds up the Saul's spear and he holds up his, his water jug. And he's like, look, I don't intend to harm you. Why are you chasing me? Apparently, Saul has a change of heart again. Verse 21, it says, Then Saul said, I've sinned. Come back, David, my son, because you considered my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted a fool and have been horribly wrong. But what what does David do, though? It says, so David went on his way. (laughs) Saul returned home. Multiple times, whenever Saul's sorry, he's like, no, 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 come back to the palace. Everything will be just as it was before. David's like, no way. Why? He doesn't trust him. His apologies are short-lived. I want to make this point that if you're considering forgiving somebody, point number six is this. Grace doesn't have to be gullible. Listen, if you're in the throes of trying to forgive somebody, we did a whole series on trust this year. And we learned this. Forgiveness is free. You give it away whether they deserve it or not because it's based off of mercy and grace. The same way that your salvation, your forgiveness was not based off of what you did. It was based off of Christ's sacrifice. God's mercy and grace lived out on the cross. But trust is a whole other story. (laughs) Trust is earned. Unless Saul becomes a trustworthy person to prove himself, grace doesn't have to be gullible. Those are our two stories of forgiveness or revenge, and David gets it right at both times. But sandwiched between those two stories is a story of forgiveness or revenge, and David doesn't actually get it right. Let me tell you this story. Chapter 25. David and his men, they're living in what's called the desert of Paran, and there's a rich guy there. His name, his name is Nabal. Now, you got to know this about Nabal. Uh, His name means fool, I don't know what kind of bad mom you had, (laughs) but to name your kid fool, that's Nabal's name. He's a rich man. He owns a lot of livestock. And so as his animals would graze in the hills, David's men were encamped around him and protected all of his livestock. Not a single one was lost to, to, to thieves or to predators. 
Now, when it came time to shear the sheep, David sends a group of his men to Nabal and says, listen, we've been working for you all this time. We've earned some supplies. Like, would you send my men back with some supplies and help us out? And Nabal responds with like, who's David? Like, who are you and who do you think you are to to request my stuff? So he sends the men back and just says, don't bother me anymore. Ooh, David does not take rejection well. He's angry and he tells his 400 men, um, strap on your swords. We're going to go find Nabal. We're going to kill him. And we're going to kill his entire family. And we're going to take all his stuff. I mean, David, David is, at this moment, it appears that David has completely snapped. Is he overreacting to the situation? Absolutely. But think about it this way. David's been chased for years now by Saul. And he's been so, he's endured a lot of injustice from Saul. And I think he's about to take it out on Nabal. So Nabal's uh, servants, they get wind of this, that, hey, uh, David's coming for us. We have to be ready for this. But instead of telling Nabal, because Nabal's a fool, they tell his wife. Her name is Abigail. And the scriptures describe her as beautiful and intelligent. And so Abigail immediately says this, servants, start packing all the donkeys with food, with gifts, and then let's go meet him on the road. Abigail meets David and his 400 soldiers on the road. She gets off and says, David, David, I'm so, I'm so sorry. Like, here's these gifts. This is what you're owed. And she gives this unbelievable speech. Listen to her speech. This is chapter 25, verse 24. Pardon your servant, my Lord. Now, when there's a small Lord, it means she's referring to David or maybe her husband. The capital L-O-R-D, she's referring to God. Pardon your servant, my Lord, and let me speak to you. Hear what your servant has to say. Please pay no attention to my Lord, that wicked man, Nabal. He's just like his name. His name means fool and folly goes with him. As for me, your servant, I did not see the men my Lord sent Please, verse 28 ends with this. Please forgive your servant's presumption. If you get anything out of today, the grudgeless life, you want to let a grudge go? Here it is. It comes from forgiveness. You got to forgive. Because forgiveness quenches the thirst for revenge. Nothing quenches the thirst for revenge other than forgiveness. And it has to come from a heart that's filled with mercy and grace. And I'll just tell you this. You will never understand completely mercy and grace until you understand what Jesus did for you on the cross. The ultimate act of mercy and grace, forgiving us. David, the point is this, walk away, David. Just walk away. I don't care how you feel, walk away. Because in this moment, David could waste his life. But even worse, and this is point number eight, David could waste his future. If you're considering this grudgeless life, don't waste your God-given future on revenge. Listen to what Abigail says, verse 26. Since the Lord has kept you from bloodshed, from avenging yourself with your own hand, verse 28, the Lord your God will certainly make a lasting dynasty for my Lord. This is the first place in the Bible where it's mentioned that David is gonna have a dynasty, a kingdom that will last forever. You know what that means? It's connected to the Christmas story that the savior of the world, Jesus, would come from the lineage of David. His kingdom would have no end. Um, 
Interesting, though, can I ask you this? What kind of future do you think David would have had if he had taken out Nabal and his family and taken all of his stuff? Would God have stuck with David? God didn't stick with Saul when Saul was disobedient. Well, luckily, we don't know because David relents and he forgives and he walks away. I'm going to say this. You can hang on to your grudge if you want to. But I think what will happen is that you will walk into a future that God does not have for you, that God does not want for you. I'm not saying he's going to abandon you, but you're going to walk into a life that, that is not good. And if you want to discover the goodness of God, the answer is this, have mercy and forgive. Number nine, the grudgeless life means this. You got to fight only the battles that God wants you to fight. In the midst of Abigail's speech, she says this, because you fight the Lord's battles. Just that little phrase. She looks at David and she says, listen, I know you fight the Lord's battles. You know this about David? If you actually read through his whole story, every time he goes to war, he pauses and he goes, God, is this your battle? Is, do you want me to go fight this? I mean, are you going to go before us? Are you going to help us win? Is this a battle you want me to fight? What if you and I did the same thing? Because there's moments of great injustice in the world. And some battles are worth fighting if God wants you to fight them. But honestly, sometimes we just fight battles because we're mad or we're offended or we're hurt. David, in this case, he doesn't ask God. He doesn't care. He's just going to take out Nabal, um, let me ask you this question too. How do you pick your battles? Do you pick your battles based off of whether you think you can win them or not? Let me give you a very simple example. You're in a parking lot. Someone cuts you off and you have a minor fender bender. They're clearly in the wrong. Do you throw that car door open? Guys, I'm, I'm kind of talking to you right now. Well, some of you ladies too, maybe, all right? Throw that car door open, you get out, and you've got attitude. And then you see the person get out of the car, and they are a rather scary individual. And all of a sudden, you get all humble and kind. Were you about to go pick a fight or pick a battle because you thought you could win it? And the moment you thought you can't win it, then you decided to show God's mercy and grace. Sometimes we know we can win over our kids, and so we choose to battle them. Sometimes we choose to battle our parents. See, I, I think David in this moment, he doesn't battle Saul because he knows that God has anointed him. But Saul's in the power position. He's the king. David's in the submissive position. He's a servant to the king. I would never kill him. But here comes Nabal. He's a rich guy, but he's also a fool. No one likes him. Would anyone really miss Nabal if he was gone? And David being the bigger 400 men, soldiers in his army, he's about to go take him out. Why? Because he can. And he can probably get away with it. I'm guessing that sometimes the people we think about taking revenge on there's some people we would never think, we would just think about it. We would never actually do it. Why? Because they're more powerful than us or they're bigger than us. But sometimes the weaker person, do we forgive them just as well, even though we feel like we could overpower them either physically or financially or legally? 
Does grace and mercy rule in us even when the weaker person is in front of us? Um, Last thought for you, point number 10. The grudgeless life is not easy, but here it is. It's good. It's good for us. There's a study in 2019 in the the report in the Journal of Psychology and Aging. It found this. It's just straight, some science here. Found that holding grudges is dangerous for your health. There's a guy by the name of Dr. Frederick Luskin, and he was the founder of the Stanford Forgiveness Project. Let me just share a couple results from his study. Uh, Remaining in a state of anger is associated with chronic inflammation and other illnesses. Number two, the effect intensifies with age. In other words, the longer you hold the grudge, the sicker you get. You know how he studied this? He brought people over from Ireland who had been affected by war, whose families had been killed in war. They had a reason to hurt. They had a reason to have a grudge. And they had an illness. He brought them over here to the Stanford area, and he studied the effects of their grudges. They're legitimate grudges. They're logical grudges. They're reasonable grudges on the health that they had. They taught them how to forgive people. And as they, and by the way, this, this man is not a Christian, he's in, but it's based off all these Christian principles. Taught them how to forgive. And those that forgave, their health improved. He, he found this unforgiveness shuts down and dampens the immune response, leads to some aspects of depression, dysregulates the nervous system. Unforgiveness is the most harmful emotion for the cardiovascular system. Isn't that wild? You know know what emotion has no detriments to your health, though? Sadness. Think about it for a minute. When you are taken advantage of, when there's injustice in your life, it's okay to be sad. Sadness doesn't feel good, but it doesn't have any negative health effects. Sadness is just a natural response to injustice. Um, So here's what he found out. Grudges destroy people from the inside out. And this is why God makes it unbelievably clear over and over and over again. I'm going to wrap up with this. If you jump to the New Testament, there's all kinds of verses there that speak about what do you do when there's been an injustice. Romans 12, 19. Do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath. For it is written, it is mine to avenge. I will repay, says the Lord. Peter, who followed Jesus for all of his years of ministry, he remembered Jesus stating this. But I tell you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. I mean, just ask yourself the question, do you do that? Love your enemies. And I'll I'll be honest, sometimes they're better loving them from a distance. But love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And then Peter, watching Jesus' life, he wrote down, as he recalled the moment when Jesus demonstrated this on the cross, he wrote it down in a book that we know as First Peter. It says this, when they hurled their insults at him, at Jesus, Jesus did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made no threats. Instead, he entrusted himself to him who judges justly. Jesus understands injustice. He lived it for us on the cross. He was innocent, but died in our place there. He's our model. 
for the grudgeless life. So let's wrap it up with this question. Here's your final thought. You can drink from the cup of grudges and it'll poison your soul. Or you can drink from the cup of forgiveness and it brings healing and it brings hope. Grudges ruin souls. But forgiveness allows us to embrace this good future that God has for us. So question, what cup do you want to drink from? If I said, hey, let's go to the En Gedi and you have a choice, you can drink from this cup of the Dead Sea. It's a fresh out of the Dead Sea. It's blue, green, a little bit milky. It's not always clear. Or you can drink from the waters of En Gedi. I mean, the choice is simple, right? But today, it's honest, you got the same choice. And we brought cups with us today. You see, because for the last 2,000 years, Christians have been invited to celebrate drinking from the cup. Because before Jesus went to the cross, he had dinner. That's what's called the Last Supper. And he raised a cup. And he said, this is the symbol. This represents my blood. It's going to be poured out for you. This is the new covenant with us that's poured out for the forgiveness of your sins. He says, I want you to drink this. And I want you to keep drinking it until I come back for you. And that same uh, night, he broke bread at that table. And he said, I want you to eat this too, because it's a symbol of my body that's broken for you. He does this before he ever goes to the cross. Now, once Jesus dies on the cross, the disciples look back and it all makes sense now. And for the last 2000 years, Christians do this. We gather together for what's called communion and we take bread and we eat it as the symbol of Jesus's body broken for us, that we can live a grudgeless life. Because the same mercy he had on us, he says this, here's the implication. If you're going to eat this and if you're going to drink this, Jesus said, as I have loved you, so you must love one another. If you're going to call yourself a Christian, then here it is. You got to love like he loves. You got to let go of the grudge and embrace the injustice like Jesus did. I'm not saying you... There's no opportunity to take legal action when things are go that way. But to say I'm not going to hold a grudge or take revenge is not just good for your health. It is good for your soul. And so here's what we're going to do. To wrap up, there's tables that are all around the room. And on there's cups. And on one side, there is bread. You turn it over. There's juice inside the other side. And we're going to celebrate what's called Communion. It's about our relationship with God, that God didn't hold a grudge against us when we were sinners. But the scripture says that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. If you ever want your heart to change, you got to embrace God's mercy and grace for you. You can't just try to muster up this energy to try and like, oh, I'm going to become more forgiving and not accept Jesus. I mean, you really got to accept this and let it affect your heart. And so listen, if you're a believer, I'm going to invite you to these tables and I'm going to invite you to go take communion in just a moment. Um, If you're not yet a believer in Jesus, don't take this because we do this in remembrance of what he's done for us. You first have to accept it. But I will say this, if you're sitting in your seat and you're like, well, this makes sense to me now. He died on the cross and came back to life three days later, proving that he was God's son, showed himself to hundreds of people alive, proving that he's Jesus, our savior. If you want to give your life to Christ, then then do that. It's a prayer. It is, God, 
I believe that you love me, that your son died for my sins, and I will receive that. And you can join us at the table today. For the rest of us, you've given your life to Christ already. I would ask you to do this. When you eat and when you drink, would you just pause for a moment and ask God, am I holding a grudge? And if you are, just declare it. God, I let it go. (laughs) You can't emotional yourself to do that. Just declare it and stand on that truth and see what God does with your heart. God, I forgive so-and-so. God, I will no longer hold a grudge over that person. And let him heal your heart. Let's bow our heads. God, thanks for your word and stories that still speak today. Thank you for your body and your blood that you willingly gave so that we could be forgiven. And I pray that that grace and that mercy They change our hearts, God. That they transform us to be more like you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.